a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigionoth. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. God came from Timan, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise, rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. But he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Cushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nations invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet to be like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. For the director of music on my stringed instruments. So what do you do when everything is taken from you? When you lose everything? That's the question we're going to answer today. When, when you go through the darkest valleys and the deepest pits... Where do you turn? We know the right answer, don't we? We know where we want to turn. We want to turn to God, to, to Jesus. But how can we make that desire a reality? Last week, we looked at the beginning of Habakkuk. Today, we're looking at the end of Habakkuk's story. And the ending of his book from verse 17 is, is famous. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful 
in God my Savior. So for Habakkuk, everything he has relied on is being stripped away. It's the threat of nothing to eat, nothing to drink, nowhere to hide, nowhere to go. He loses every luxury, the figs, the grapes. He loses every necessity, food, sheep, cattle. And when he loses everything, where does he turn? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. So when you lose your job or your home or you go from security and comfort to poverty, when your husband or wife divorces you, when your son or daughter becomes enslaved through addiction to drink or drugs or anything, when everything we have, everyone we love are taken from us, where do we go? For some of us, we think, oh, that, that, that won't happen to me. I know that that happens, but it happens to other people. But we've got no basis for saying that. There's, there's no one whose lives couldn't be changed by a, a phone call or a, a knock on the door. So we need to think about it in advance, perhaps. Where will you turn when you get terminal cancer? Where will you look when your child is diagnosed with that incurable disease? God has given us the book of Habakkuk to help us answer these questions. When we lose everything, when everything is taken from you, what do you do? And the answer is surprising and simple. What do we do when we lose everything? The answer is we sing. Perhaps not quite the answer, we'd expect, but when everything's taken, we're left with nothing, we sing, we we turn to God and we rejoice in him. So three points this morning. The first one is very simply from verse one, we sing. And we know chapter three of Habakkuk is a song for a few reasons. It's in the final verses that written instruction to the director of music, telling him to use stringed instruments for this piece. We also have the word uh, sila a few times. The, the NIV has re- relegated it to footnotes, but it's there in verses 3 and 9 and 13, and, and that indicates a, a pause or break in the song. And we have on Shigionoth. I know this is why you came to the church this morning, to find out what this word means. I, I don't know. But it is also used in the Psalms, and so we presume that it is a musical instrument of some sort. So this is a song. This is Habakkuk's song, and it's a song to be sung with others. It's not Habakkuk's CD that he puts on in the car. It's a song to be sung in the temple as part of Israel's worship with musicians and so on. And so right here as we start the chapter, we're seeing that God's people sing. Christians, we are people who sing, aren't we? When we're on our own, when when we're together, Christian singing has often been one of the more baffling things to those on the outside because we sing whatever the circumstances. We sing when we've got joy in our hearts and we're thankful to God and we sing when everything goes against us and we're left with nothing but God. And everything seems to be going against Habakkuk in this book. 
A few years ago, the, the film The Lego Movie 2 came out. Perhaps some of you have seen it because we had children of a certain age when it came out. We saw it many, many times. And the main character of the Lego movie 2 is a, is a guy called Emmett. Emmett is made out of Lego and he is a positive and upbeat character. He is upbeat about everything. And in the first movie, he's got a song, Everything is Awesome. He, he thinks everything is awesome, no matter if it's good or bad. At one point, he sings, life is good because everything's awesome. Lost my job. That's a new opportunity. More free time for my awesome community. Stepped in mud. I've got new brown shoes. It's awesome to win and it's awesome to lose. Everything's awesome. But that's, that's the first Lego movie. Come to the second Lego movie. In the opening scenes, you see their Lego city has been destroyed by invaders. And it's a gritty and harsh scene. Everyone is downbeat. All the characters are despairing except Emmett who is still singing, everything is awesome, everything is cool when you're part of a team. And it feels like he's lost the plot a little bit because he hasn't recognized the severity of the situation. Things aren't awesome. For Habakkuk, he's going to finish by singing, and, and we're kind of left with the same thought. Is everything actually awesome, Habakkuk, or is everything awful? Is this just kind of cheap triumphalism? like Emmett in the Lego movie, or is it something else? Well, let's do a little recap of what his situation is. We began with uh, Habakkuk on his knees at the beginning of the book, crying out to God because of his, his country of Israel was full of injustice and violence. God seemed indifferent about it. And the rest of Habakkuk, which we haven't really looked at, is, is a back and forth between Habakkuk and, and God. God responds to Habakkuk's complaint. I am doing something about this injustice. I'm bringing this nation called the, the Chaldeans to come and conquer Israel, to, to conquer Jerusalem. Because you're right, Habakkuk, it can't go on like this. But God's reply left Habakkuk more confused and more bewildered than before. Because the Chaldeans who were coming to solve the problem were worse than the Israelites who were the, they were coming to capture. That they're cruel and barbaric. They ravage, they plunder, they kill. Those who escape death, they take captive. Later, they take the king of Israel, they kill his sons before his eyes, and then gouge out his eyes. So the last thing he sees is his sons being killed before him, and he's then left to rot in prison until he dies. The Chaldeans are brutal and so you can understand Habakkuk's shock that God is sending these people to Israel. Everything's not awesome. This isn't theoretical. This isn't abstract. This is going to happen to Habakkuk and his family. And so he asks God in the second half of, of chapter one, is this it now? Are you just, are you just going to let them, these horrific Chaldeans, are you going to let them conquer nation after nation and spread their cruelty across the earth for the rest of time? God says, no. And this is what chapter two is about. He tells Habakkuk, I will also deal with the Chaldeans. Five woes are going to come upon them. But before the woes, there was a, a verse, a, a key verse, chapter two, verse four. 
that helps us understand God's purposes in the world. God says the righteous person will live by his faithfulness, or the righteous person will live by faith. And so this is the, this is the key. It may seem for now that the righteous are surrounded and that evil prospers and that wrongdoing triumphs. It may seem that way, but look with faith through the lens of eternity and you'll know that that's not the case. In fact, the wicked will be judged. They will receive every last drop of punishment for their sin and the righteous will live by faith. You become part of the righteous by faith and then you endure what is to come by faith. And so recap almost over. At the end of chapter 2, the the final verse, God calls Habakkuk and all the world to be silent. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. To Habakkuk spoken twice. God has responded twice. All is now silent. And then out of the silence, like the the first bird singing at the break of dawn, Habakkuk begins singing. So no, this, this is not cheap triumphalism. This is not deluded optimism. This is defiant faith in the midst of deep suffering. Imagine in a, a football stand, your, your, your team you're supporting is losing 9-0. I'm a Southampton fan. That would never happen to us. It's entirely hypothetical. And everything points to the fact that you should just give up and go home early. There's no point sitting there for the remaining 65 minutes of the game. But someone in the crowd starts up and, 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 and starts, stands up and starts singing, Oh, when the saints... Go marching in. And at first it's, it's a lone voice, but as he sings, others join in and then others as well. And then you have a, a crowd singing defiantly together, or at least those who haven't already left the ground. And they're saying, despite the circumstances, despite what will be said in the newspapers tomorrow, despite the scoreline, despite the abject performance in front of us, we will sing. And it's the same for us as Christians, but more so. Christians, we, we sing in every circumstance, the, the 9-0 victory and the 9-0 loss, so to speak. We have songs of praise, praising God for who he is and, and what he's done. We have songs about our hope that, that circumstance, circumstances cannot take away. We have songs to sing God's praises when we're suffering. We'll sing a bit later, blessed be your name, when the sun's shining down on me and all's, the world's all as it should be, blessed be your name. And blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. See, Christians, we, we can sing in every circumstance. Think of, think of the Apostle Paul in jail in the town of Philippi in the most secure part of the jail, fastened in the stocks in Acts chapter 16, we're told about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. See, we sing even when we suffer. 
It's our act of defiant faith. And when we sing, we're expressing what we, we can't always express in normal words. Psalm 42, that the writer of the psalm is struggling because God feels distant and, and life is hard. He's crying day and night. Yet he says, he sings, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. He responds to his desperate circumstances by singing. The Psalms give us words to sing. And so Christians, when you're beaten down by the world, the flesh, or the devil, and when you find it hard to pray, and when you find it hard to read your Bible, and when you're baffled and confused by what God is or isn't doing in your life, and when you feel that you really don't have anything to give, come to church. Join with God's people and sing. And say that despite all that is going on, I will praise my God. And let that be your your act of defiance, your defiant singing, even against your own heart when you have a cold heart. So point number one, we sing. But what does, what does Habakkuk sing about? Well, and what do we sing about? This is looking at verses 2 to 15. The answer is we sing about what God has done. And we turn it into prayer for God to do it again. So verses 2 to 15, we're not going to work through these verse by verse. I'll I'll jump around the passage a bit, pick out some highlights. Start with verse 2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Habakkuk's got this reverent fear, this awestruck amazement. Over the last two chapters, God has pulled back the curtain for him. He's shown him some of his plans on the grand stage of history and salvation. Reverent fear, awestruck amazement is Habakkuk's response. And as a result, he starts singing about God's work. And and verses 3 to 15, he's just singing a few different highlights of the things that God has done in years gone by. A few years ago, a friend of ours wanted to do a nice birthday card for his wife. And so he went online and he uploaded a bunch of different photos of her and of them together. He arranged the photos all around the front of the card in the middle with the birthday wishes. And uh, got to the day of the birthday, his wife opened the card, looked at all the photos and, and looked at the words in the middle, you know, happy birthday, Danielle. That The problem was that her name was not Danielle. It's Lynn. (laughs) Happy birthday, Danielle, was just the default text in the middle that our friend had forgotten to edit. All that time he put in doing this lovely card, slightly undermined. She she saw the funny side. They're still together. But but think of that card, not the text in the middle. Think of the, the pictures all around, memories of different things they've done together as a couple. Every picture told a story. And if you wanted to hear the story, they'd happily tell it. And and that's what's going on in verses 3 to 15. Habakkuk's song, it's like lots of little pictures, little brief snapshots for each of them. There's a whole story, and if you wanted to go and find it in the Bible, you could. Verse 3, he talks about God coming from Teman and and Mount Paran. He's, He's talking about when God led the Israelites through the wilderness into the promised land. Verse 5, pestilence and plague. It's talking about God rescuing his people from Egypt. 
Verse 7, Cushan and, and Midian are mentioned, enemies of God's people who oppressed them, particularly do, during the book of Judges. A story about how God rescued his people. Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in the heavens. You can read about that in the, the book of Joshua when God stops the sun in the sky to allow Israel to win their battle. Joshua 10 verse 13. In this song, Habakkuk sings about all sorts of things that God have done, all sorts of pictures on the front of the card. And what binds them together, perhaps the message you could put in the middle of the card, is that God saves his people and judges his enemies. Verses 12 and 13 sum up the message of the song. Verse 12, judgment for God's enemies. In wrath you strode through the earth. In anger you threshed the nations. And verse 13, salvation for God's people. You came out to deliver your people. But I want, I wonder, does, it feels a little bit like God's got the card mixed up, like our friend. The wrong message in the middle. Because think about it, Habakkuk's writing this song to be sung in the temple, but the temple's about to be destroyed by these Chaldean armies. So the message of this card, this song, is that God saves his people and judges his enemies. And Habakkuk's singing that knowing in the short term that God will judge his people and appear to prosper his enemies. So it feels slightly like this song is the the wrong song for the occasion. There's a mixed message. But no, that's not what's going on. Rather, this is defiant singing again. It's saying, when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's saying, God, we know what you're like. We know how you work. You've shown us in the past again and again and again. Please do it again. Please come again for the salvation of your people. Habakkuk is remembering that God is not a God who stands far away, who who looks at the world and just thinks about getting involved. That's, That's what he'd accused God of at the beginning, turning a blind eye and ignoring evil. But now, verse 3, he sings, he remembers, God came. You see, we have a God who comes into the world. And that's worth singing about. That's worth remembering when everything else is falling apart. And of course, most of the, most of all, he came into the world one decisive time in the person of Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man. God came. And then that inspires 10,000 songs. God came for the salvation of his people. Jesus lived for us. He died for us. He died so that all who believe in him, might, who turn to him, can be forgiven. And so we sing about the ultimate work of God, which is about Christ. We sing about the cross. We sing about grace and forgiveness and mercy and love because we don't deserve God's forgiveness, but he offers it to us as a gift. We sing about how Jesus works in us and how Jesus changes us. We sing about how he strengthens us and comforts us. We sing about how he loves us and he cherishes us. And we sing about how he will one day bring us to be with him for all eternity. Christians, we sing, we sing, we sing, even when everything around us makes us want to stop singing because life is too hard and your circumstances are too bleak. 
and we don't feel like we've got anything to sing about. Even then, we gather together and we sing. We sing about what God has done, most of all in Jesus Christ. And then we turn it into a prayer for God to do it again. Look at the the second half of verse 2. There's a plea, there's, there's a prayer. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. So what's what's he asking God to do in his time, in his day, with violence and injustice everywhere, with the Chaldeans on the doorstep? He's saying, do these awesome works of salvation again, Lord. Save us again. In wrath, remember mercy. When we're carted off and sitting in captivity, please don't forget us, Lord, as if God would ever forget. So for us, the message here is simple. We, We sing about what God has done, but then we turn that into a prayer for God to do it again. Not send Jesus to die again. Obviously, that's a, a once-for-all thing. Our sins are, are paid for, but look through the ages of the church, the ages when God has sent his Holy Spirit and, and saved many, starting in the, in the book of Acts, but then repeatedly across nations, there have been those times when people have turned in greater number one after another, have turned to Jesus to receive him as Lord and Savior. We, we call it revival. When God works in people's hearts over and above what we ordinarily see. A time, a time of special blessing on the church and, and the spread of the gospel. God has done it many times across nations, even in our nation. The Welsh revival of 1904. It blows your mind when you think about what God has done in the past. 70,000 people professed faith in the first two months. 100,000 during the course of the revival. And during the time of revival, the police were left with virtually nothing to do. The, The courts were empty. Public drunkenness was almost non-existent. Old debts, many long forgotten, were paid off in full One person said, it was plainly evident now to everybody that God had answered the agonizing prayers of his people and had sent a mighty spiritual upheaval. A sense of the Lord's presence was everywhere. His presence was felt in the homes, on the streets, in the mines, factories, and schools. Eternal issues were discussed freely and unashamedly. And above all, a sense of the presence of God pervaded every area of human experience. So God has done awesome things in the past. And Habakkuk has remembered the amazing things God has done in the past. He's sung about them in his bleak days. But what does he sing? He says, repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. And so we too can can say that, sing that same song. We can ask God to do it again. Save many, send your spirit, do a mighty work in our day. In wrath, remember mercy. So we sing, we sing about what God has done and we ask him to do it again. Thirdly and finally this morning, we sing for joy. Verses 16 to 19, we we sing for joy. So is this a happy ending to the book? Well, sort of, kind of, yes and no. Habakkuk's not saying everything is awesome. He's saying everything's not awesome. 
but I'm going to praise God anyway. So verse 16, read with me. I, heart, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones. My legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. So he's been transformed by his encounter with God. Physically, he's on the verge of collapse. As, as the full weight of what is going to come on God's people breaks over him. Yet, yet is such a powerful word, isn't it? Yet, I will wait patiently. Verse 17, though the fig tree doesn't bud, there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. So there at the end of verse 17, two words for joy. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God. So how, how can he sing with joy? How can he take joy in every circumstance? How, how can we have joy when you lose the job, when you get the diagnosis, when the relationship ends, when the bereavement comes, whatever it looks like for you? How do we sing with joy? We've got two options, really. You can hide it from God. We talked about this last week. You can turn from God, distance yourself from God, grow bitter towards him, play, blame him, and in some ways those are understandable reactions, but they don't lead to joy. Verse 18 tells us the path to joy, and that's not it. The road to joy is counterintuitive. It's like you're sitting in the back of a car. You're convinced the driver's going the wrong way. You say, this road doesn't lead to joy. We're going the wrong way. We need to turn around. But then you see the driver knows a route that you didn't know. He's taking you by a route you didn't expect. And that's what's going on when we run to God in our suffering. It feels like, well, this road's never going to lead to joy. This is, this, this is the road of despair. This is the road of suffering. Why are you taking me this way? God, you're, you're driving the car the wrong way. And then we suddenly realize that he is taking us to joy in a way we didn't expect, by a route we didn't know. When we run to God in our suffering, he promises to strengthen us and give us joy. This isn't some clever technique where if we can find some inner strength and some stoicism that leaves us unmoved in deep suffering, we'll find joy. No, no, this is the work of the living God in our hearts. When we run to him in trials with nothing except nothing, and we just run to him and say, Lord, I have nothing, he gives us strength. He gives us joy, more strength and more joy than if we weren't suffering. And it's counterintuitive and it's back to front. You think, how can God do this? It's because God himself is the source of joy. He's the, the fountain of joy. Psalm 16, one of my favorite verses. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
So when we suffer and all the comforts that we usually rely on are taken away, like crutches that we're leaning on being kicked out from underneath us, and there's nothing left to do except rely on God. And and when we do that and we fall on our knees before him, literally or, or metaphorically, because we can't stand in our own strength, when we come to him, he fills us with joy that surpasses all understanding. So we sing, we sing about what God has done, and we sing for joy. We sing for joy in that as we, as we sing, we are coming to God and saying, we are asking for joy, fill us with joy, even in our suffering. 